The control freak knows how to show up, but they don't know how to let go. The complacent person knows how to let go, but they don't know how to show up. And what we're really talking about is showing up, then letting go of outcome. Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. Hi, everybody. This is Ethan Nickturn for the Road Home Podcast. Uh, this is the 81st episode of this podcast. Not a round number, but um, kind of cool that we've had so many guests and um, so many episodes. And just want to say thank you to everybody who's been on the podcast. And uh, thank you to everybody who's listening. Obviously, if you're a new listener, um, you can check out a lot of back episodes. But um just do this podcast for for fun and for good conversation and a way to publicly share ideas. And it's wonderful that it continues to gain people listening. So just wanted to say thank you so much for that. Uh, so the topic for today um, is really how we work with giving up control in a world that feels very out of control. I'm uh, thinking about control and surrendering control uh, a lot these days. A lot of the conversations I have uh, with students uh, are about anxiety and um, a need to control the uncontrollable. And, um, you know, as I'm recording this, Podcasts were exactly 28 days away from the Tuesday, November 8th midterm elections uh, in the United States, um, which I'm cautiously optimistic that democracy will prevail. And notice I didn't say that Democrats will prevail. I said democracy will prevail. Um, but it's a situation that feels highly complex. It's all based on quite simply how many people show up in a midterm election. Uh, most midterm elections are low turnout, usually favor um, the political party that is not in power. Um, and because they're low turnout elections, most midterm elections um, have a sort of stealth effect of transforming America. That actually, if you look at you know, the United States this century, uh, one could say, well, the 2000 election where Florida handed it to George W. Bush, that was something. And then the 2016 election where Donald Trump lost by almost three million votes, but got enough of this weird thing we call the Electoral College um, to become president. That's really important. Um, or you could say the 2020 election highest turnout ever uh, in a U.S. election, still a relatively low turnout as a percentage of population, but highest turnout ever in a U.S. election. And those were the important races. But it's actually these 
moments where we don't know if people are going to show up. Uh, 2002 midterms, uh, 2010 midterms, 2018 midterms, that when you actually look at the control of the government, those are, could be argued, those are the ones that have the biggest impact. So I strongly suggest right up front in this podcast, doing what you can uh, to help get out the vote for November 8th, 2022, the year of our Lordis, the year of our basically good unknown uh, creator and creation. Um, but it's not something we can control. You know, there's cautious optimism in Ukraine. Uh, there's cautious optimism um, in other places. Uh, Brazil could see the end of a far right wing reg- regime. Things feel very out of control in other places, Italy, et cetera. Um, And then there's the things that are really out of control in the world. Uh, The threat of nuclear war, um, the climate crisis being the the thing that feels the most directly out of our individual control. not saying it's not out of our collective, that it's out of our collective influence, but just all of these things in a big world that feel like, oh, shit, stuff is going down. I don't know what I can do about it. And um, I'm scared. I'm anxious, you know. And it's interesting because so many of us have been experiencing heightened anxiety, especially in and during uh, the pandemic. And, um, And if we are moving into this phase of the endemic phase of COVID, that's still there, right? People have very different... Um, reactions I've noticed. And I think COVID is a good um, example of this in a way, very different reactions to generalized situations where you're not in control, right? Um, Notice that some people are still masking outdoors, you know, as as a precautionary measure, as an attempt to control the air that enters their, uh, ecosystem, their bodies. And, you know, some people seem to be treating the pandemic like, you know, like, a, like a, some grownups seem to be treating where we're at with COVID like a five-year-old child, just, you know, go everywhere, lick everything, um, et cetera. So we have very different ways of handling that situation. And we have very different ways of handling generally um, situations that we can't control. And I think in some case, you could think about it as two extremes for control. It's always very useful to start with this notion of extreme approaches to a difficult or uncomfortable situation. And the difficult, uncomfortable situation here is that the world is out of control. Things might be falling apart. Um, Isn't that always the case, though? this state of things either falling apart, something crucial having just fallen apart for us, um, or things in the process of falling apart. In a sense, this is, you know, the wheelhouse, you could say, of all Buddhist teachings is, you know, the Pema Chodron book, um, also the Great Roots album, uh, When Things Fall Apart, right? That's just sort of what these teachings and practices are designed for. 
Um, and we live in a state of feeling like things um, might fall apart at any moment, right? We're trying to hold together a reality, right? We're trying to hold together um, a kind of um, huge, vast network of events, of the actions of other people we try to take responsibility for. We try to control whether it rains when we go outside or we could, right? If we would, if we could, we would control the rain, right? I'm sure somebody's working on that technology. Just how do we bring precipitation under human control so you don't have to face the fear that when you go outside, you may or may not get wet? So in a sense, the world is always falling apart. I remember writing a poem in my 20s uh, to a dear old friend, uh, Ian Kobner. Shout out to you if you ever listen to this. Um, and it was written in the time of the Iraq War and this sense, which is very much politically, I think people forget, but very much politically feels like uh, where things are at now. Perhaps we're further along the same precipice, but um, this sense of the American regime at that time feeling uh, to many of us to be um, warmongering, you know, to be um, unelected. Um, I'm always fascinated that people consider George W. Bush a different phenomenon from Donald Trump because I feel like they're cut from the very same cloth. Um, and many of us felt like the world was out of control. We also had this fear at that time, I remember people were talking about the prophecy of 2012, uh, you know, this fear that oil was going to dry up before we knew how to transition uh, to another fuel source or solar power, and that would completely crash the economy. This was the world of like 2004, 2005. Um, and, you know, what I said in this poem was, the world is falling apart yet again, my friend. That's what the world does. It falls apart. Right. That doesn't mean we make it fall apart, but the Buddhist teachings are positioned for a kind of experience where um, things are in a, a state of transition, of loss, of non-solidity, of shaky ground. That's really the experience of a loss of control. Shaky ground all the time. And it creates this sort of pervasive anxiety, which when the Buddhist teachings talk about dukkha or dissatisfaction or confusion or suffering, they talk about different types of suffering. And one of them is sometimes uh, translated as all pervasive dukkha. But I think probably in our modern terminology it would be better translated as the generalized anxiety form of dukkha. And this generalized anxiety just comes from, uh, you could say, trying to hold together things which in our heart of heart we know cannot be held together or cannot be held together by our own personal, solitary, Herculean efforts. You know, I don't use a lot of um, Disney movie references uh, in, in my talks or podcasts, I try to save people from those. Um, 
but as, especially with how frequently I'm called upon to to watch uh, animated movies uh, as the father of a kindergartner. Um, but uh, I am reminded at this point of the movie Encanto um, and the character in Encanto of Luisa, who is the one of the sisters, all of the members of the family, um, except the main character, uh, Mirabel have um, superpowers, basically some kind of magical power with which they can help the family and the community um, around their casita. And Luisa's superpower is that she's strong, right? And she always can hold things together. Um, And uh, as the, the sort of struggle of the plot progresses, she feels weak and also the house, the casita where the family lives starts to fall apart and she cannot hold it together, right? So she has a really um, interesting, powerful song, I would say, about um, this all-pervasive dukkha, the dukkha of trying to hold the world together um, that I recommend if you haven't watched Encanto it's a good, that's a good, Luisa's uh, solo song is a good summation of all pervasive dukkha, the generalized anxiety of trying to hold it all together. And ultimately speaking, from a Buddhist perspective, what we're trying to hold together is a self, right? A me that can sort of be coherent and um, known and reliable to face whatever the universe um, throws at us, right? Whatever experience throws at us. And so the two extremes, right? The two extremes, when something within us realizes that we live in a complex world, an incredibly complex world, that our personal lives are determined by a very complex set of factors. You know, anybody telling you uh, any mindfulness or spiritual or wellness influencer telling you that if you just do this or just do that, you will manifest X, Y, and Z. Hate to say it, but it's bullshit. You know, you can influence if you shift your view, shift your intention, shift your attitude. You can influence that which is under your control, but um, you don't control anything. And anybody telling you you can manifest blank to arrive from external experience, right? You can manifest the life you want. Now, you can shift your attitude. You can work with things as they are. You can work with influencing what is under your influence. Those are incredibly important teachings. But anybody telling you you can manifest something... um, I think it's borderline cruel, to be honest, to tell somebody that they can shift their outer circumstance and that the reason things aren't going their way is entirely because of their attitude. Now, I do work with a lot of people who could use more positive thinking, right? And could use more, we wouldn't even call it positive thinking in Buddhism, we would call it positive intention and a sense of discipline and mindfulness But even having those things is based on a complex set of circumstances. You know, I have good discipline because 
uh, not always the best discipline, but uh, I have pretty good discipline in this life because it's what I was taught and it's what I've developed, you know, based on a complex set of causing conditions that were supportive of that, right? So everything is very complex. And if you shift your attitude, it doesn't mean you're going to get the relationship you want. It doesn't mean you're going to get the home you want. It doesn't mean you're, we're going to all get the electoral outcome that we want. It doesn't mean everybody gets health care and climate change is solved and racism goes away. It means that we begin to take an attitude of seeing what we actually can influence. And the reason spiritual teachings about mindfulness and making an internal shift and internal practices are so powerful is actually we start to realize that we have a lot more influence than we thought. We really do, you know. But we cannot control interdependent causes and conditions. And anybody saying that they can is coming from a very privileged place that is not acknowledging the complexity and interdependence that went into them being able to have their current level of comfort and happiness, you know, to say that to you. We can influence a lot. We control nothing. And that's really why we start to talk about letting go of control in Buddhism. But it's interesting to think about what our um, sort of responses are, right, to realizing that the world is out of control. On the one extreme, in this middle path approach, right, one extreme is to take the Luisa approach. Here comes the Encanto reference again. Hold it together, plow through, refuse, refuse to accept that you cannot hold the whole situation together. You know, I've noticed this mindset for me. Maybe if I write more letters to voters in North Carolina, you know, maybe if I, I'm going to, I'm on pace to write 200. Maybe if I write 300, you know, well, there's got to be good candidates too, right? And uh, the news media has to sort of do its job too. And um, people have to show up and vote, you know, and I can't control any of those things. But there's this extreme of wanting to say, I can take more on, I can take it on, I can hold it together, etc. And then the other extreme is complacency. And complacency really is a response to a bad response, a not bad, unhealthy response, just as unhealthy as trying to do more and more and take everything on, which is the Luisa um, dilemma. You know, the, the, the complacency dilemma is saying, well, you know, I can't win anyway. Somebody posted, I, I posted a reminder on Instagram today reminding people how important the election is, the November 8th election. I'm going to keep saying that. Um, it was a dude because, of course, it was. And he said, you know, something to the effect of our capitalist overlords, um, uh, you know, just give us these elections, you know, they don't care what we say or how we vote at all. It makes no difference. Uh, the thing everyone should do is organize your workplace and exert power over your labor. You know, pretty strong anti-capitalist, but also anti-democracy perspective um, and a kind of hopeless perspective, like saying what I do, what you do won't matter at all. 
Um, and of course, in the given environment, you know, this is much more likely to be uh, a man with the privilege of saying um, uh, what we do doesn't matter. But all of that aside, this is kind of the compl complacency approach. <laughs> he even took the time to write a comment, which is interesting, right? Because if this really doesn't matter, why even write the comment? Um, but sort of, you know, you could look at your yoga mat, for example, and you could say, um, what's the point? My body's just going to fall apart eventually anyway. Uh, I know this as a 44-year-old person. My body tends to feel tighter uh, more easily. I can get it to the same level of looseness as I used to when I was 32, let's say. Um, but it takes longer and it seems to snap back into tightness and sluggishness uh, more easily. So I could just as easily look at my yoga spot or yoga mat and say, there's no point, Nick Turn. What's the point? You have no control. You know, impermanence is going to win this battle. And that's completely true. But why not show up and loosen your body a little bit? Why not still feel good about actually practicing? And so what is the middle path between complacency and becoming a control freak? Right. When faced with a world that's falling apart at any moment, things that feel in a perpetual state of chaos, um, perhaps uh, annihilation. Right. Um, what's the middle path that is neither complacency nor um, control? So that that's a, a, a good lesson in the way I've come to adapt as sort of a psychological framework uh, this basic Buddhist idea of middle path is you just you define two extreme approaches in your own language. And then the middle path is asking the question, what happens if I let go of both of these extremes? I don't become complacent and I don't try to control everything. So this has something to do with surrender, you know, and it's not the same surrender of complacency because one has to surrender to something, you know. And uh, letting go is, an, is maybe a less charged way of saying surrender. And maybe letting go is better. Surrender sounds a little bit violent to many of us, especially if you've ever been harmed or abused. Um, and so I'm going to work with the phrase letting go. So we reach this point, and this is, this is the point that I'm talking about, where we don't want to be complacent, which means we have to do something. You show up, you shift your attitude, you practice mindfully, you generate discipline, you do what can be done, you know. And in the election case, there is lots that can be done, specifically around reminding people, increasing turnout, uh, etc. There is so many simple things that can be done that don't solve the situation, but influence and help the situation positively. Um, in your personal life, I'm sure this is true too, in relationships, um, in work life, right? In home life, you know, if you want a good home, you can make your bed and you can clean your stove, <laughs> It's two things I learned from the Shambhala teachings. If you want a good home and want to feel good in your home, make your bed, 
and wipe down your stove. Um, it really helps. It really helps your sense of feeling at home. But then you have to let go, you know, and the control freak in us really has to let go, right? The control freak in us has to realize, you know what? The world actually is. The universe and reality are um, designed to be chaotic. I'm floating on a marble in the middle of outer space. It is so random that this marble can support the life that later on becomes a control freak, right? So maybe things are vaster, more open, more complex, and ultimately more chaotic than any control freak can manage. And when we're looking to outcomes in the world, we really have to practice letting go. The control freak knows how to um, show up, but they don't know how to let go. The complacent person knows how to let go, but they don't know how to show up. And what we're really talking about is showing up, then letting go of outcome. So then the question is, and I think this is really a lot of the question of faith and religion. This is really the question that, that religion has come up often with bad answers for, but at least answers which is what do we let go to, right? Because there's a moment after letting go, which, you know, we might call the experience of emptiness, the experience of openness. But there's a sense of offering the effort of, of our work, of whatever we're trying to work to positively influence uh, and offering that effort to something and surrendering or letting go of control to something. And I think it was out of this kind of human need to have a place for the, for the work impulse or the control impulse or the kind of got to hold it all together impulse, something to offer that to, um, that religion developed or any belief system developed, right? Now you need a name for this, right? What can I surrender to? What can I let go into? And so here's, I think, where we get to God, right? In a lot of the religions and spiritual traditions, um, or goddess, or in a pantheistic tradition, it would be the gods or goddesses, but a sense of something more powerful, something bigger, something vaster. Whether or not that's something creative, in other words, that created us, you know, there's a lot of different stories about that. But to have a story is often really um, supportive, you know, perhaps also it's comforting in a sense. And I mean comforting not necessarily in a positive or awakened sense. To have a story about what we are surrendering to, right? I'm surrendering to God, you know, 
a lot of people who um, struggle with addiction or alcoholism who are interested in Buddhism have to come to terms with the second step, right, in 12-step programs being turning over your power to a higher power, right, which is complicated. Like, what, what does that mean? What am I surrendering to? And we can start to see how this can be manipulated because you either surrender to some narrative about something bigger and vaster and more powerful or more complex than your own um, control freakishness. Or, you know, sometimes you surrender to a cult of personality, you know, uh, and, you know, I could um, make fun of Trumpism uh, as much as I want, but I get it, you know, that that flag that that person uh, puts on their car or on their house, uh, you know, I could know that the person uh, whose name they're naming is um, a fraud. And those of us in New York have been better at knowing he was a fraud because he's sadly our fraud. Um, but uh, there's something about surrendering oneself to a, to a powerful personal figure, you know, um, to a leader, to something, it's often a dad figure, right? In patriarchy, in religious patriarchy or secular patriarchy, there's this sense of that dude is going to save us, which is also part of why I think it's hard um, for many of us to accept the idea of female leadership, right? Because it doesn't fit the narrative uh, that we're accustomed to, at least not in secular or religious society of the face of who we surrender our control freakishness to when we need help, when we need safety and we can't stay, keep the world safe by ourselves. Um, you know, sometimes it's a religious story, God and Jesus, or, you know, a, a formative narrative. Uh, I think sometimes uh, when tantric Buddhism has gone awry, it's the notion of the guru. And I do really believe that there is a uh, a different and better reason uh, to create a relationship with guru principle um, than just to surrender oneself and let go of one's own agency, one's own um, influence, one's own practice, um, and one's own kind of ethical structures into that. Um, there's actually, I, I don't actually believe that at its heart, Tantric Buddhism is about surrendering to one's guru. I think it's actually about surrendering to one's mind and one's true awareness and using the guru as a support, as a kind of connect, connective tissue for doing that. Um, and I think, you know, Buddhists are going to have to ask ourselves in terms of the teacher principle, uh, at least those who view the teacher pr principle as something to let go of towards or surrender towards, we're going to have to see how much of this is just a way to displace our control freakishness onto kind of a cult figure. Um, because it's fairly widespread in tantric Buddhism that, that this has happened, that this misunderstanding uh, has been sort of indoctrinated. And I've talked about this 
uh, from many different angles, so I don't need to spend too much time talking about it. But you do start to see the comfort of the idea of surrendering control to something that can be named that's bigger than you. But ultimately speaking, what I believe I'm surrendering my control to, and you know, we'll see how this sounds to somebody listening more than um, four weeks in the future <laughs> in the archives, whether or not it feels like, oh, everything turned out okay, you know, or, oh boy, did you not know the chaos that was coming for America and therefore the rest of the world um, <laughs> in this election, right? Did you not know the chaos that was coming because of the climate crisis, um, we're really starting to get some very major messages on that front um, that you really have to be a frog in slowly boiling water to miss. Um, but to say, you know, I'm going to show up, I'm going to do what I can, and then I'm going to put my faith in blank. Is that God? Is that the guru? Is that your cult leader? Is that Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or um, Meloni, you know, um, or Bolsonaro, right? Is that your favorite celebrity? You know, it's always interesting when people literally say, and I only think they're being semi-ironic, I worship this celebrity or that celebrity, right? It's that same quality of getting a little bit of comfort and stability, stable ground in a chaotic universe, right? We're all looking for that. So what happens if we show up, we do those little actions that we can do to positively influence our lives and the lives of others? You make your bed, you clean your stove, you do your meditation, you do your physical practice, whatever one that is for you. You get everybody you know to vote. That actually will make a difference. And then you let go, you know? You don't become one of these armchair analysts, right? You just say, let's see what happens. I can only c control so much. I have, as one of the Mahayana slogans says, I've abandoned hope of fruition. I've let go of a fixation on outcome, realizing that outcomes are incredibly complex. And I've let go into what? And the only thing I can offer you that doesn't make the mistakes of surrendering into a kind of further fixation, right? A further sense of like, daddy's here, or um, I'm following this cult or that cult, you know, just a further sense of a, a fixated tight narrative about the universe is let go into basic goodness, let go into the truth of interdependence. Let go into the beauty of the complexity of, you know, a world uh, with this many human beings and this many sentient beings in it. All who fundamentally do, I think, want to be fulfilled, want to avoid pain and confusion, do want that for others. You know, some of us have learned cruelty some of us have learned that we have to hold on to power at all costs. Um, some of us have learned all sorts of bad lessons, and all of us have learned some confused lessons. Let go into a kind of faith in 
reality itself. And the only words I have for that that have really gotten me to where I am is basic goodness and interdependence. The goodness of sentient beings and the goodness of the phenomenal world. Oh man, I, I spent this weekend um, uh, in New England visiting my mom and, and uh, my Southern relatives came up to New England for peak foliage and in uh, Northern and Western Massachusetts, it wasn't quite peak, uh, this indigenous people's uh, weekend but it was close and wow, did the um, terrain just look like, how can I describe it? Broccoli braised in tie-dye, right? And I have faith in that. I have faith in family, basically good people who have different worldviews, um, but all want happiness and well-being for themselves and others. Um, I have faith in America. I don't know if it's going to be called America. <laughs> I may be broadcasting to you in a few years from the uh, the northeastern states or something like that, and we may have formed an alliance with um, with Canada. <laughs> I have no idea what is about to happen, and I wish I were just joking about that. Um, but um, I have faith in the humans. Uh, to figure out how to live together eventually. You know, I have faith in sentiency. I have faith in um, the solar system and the galaxy to figure out what needs to happen. And if I can influence my own life and your life in any small positive way, I'm going to try to remember how to do that. But I'm going to try to remember and then let go. So my closing thought comes from uh, the Zen archery tradition of Kudo, which I've only actually practiced once, but used to practice this a lot in the Shambhala community. Um, it's, it's based on the Japanese Kudo tradition. But the entire form is an incredibly precise meditative ceremony uh, of preparing to uh, shoot your arrow. Unbelievably rigorous and precise uh, process of shooting your arrow, shoot your shot, uh, as the kids say, the, the, the kids of Gen X. Um, but when you fire your shot properly, you don't even look to see where the arrow goes. Because the idea is that you've engaged in the form so fully and so mindfully that you will hit the target. And I love that for how to live one's life and surrender um, our control without falling into complacency. So prepare, shoot your shot, and then abandon hope of outcome or fruition. Don't become the complacent uh, who understands letting go but doesn't know how to show up. And don't become the control freak which if you're anything like me, you're a little more towards this end of the spectrum, uh, who knows how to show up but doesn't know how to let go. Um, so anyway, those are my thoughts. Um, if you do hear this before November 8th, please vote as early as you can. Please remind everybody you know in the United States to show up and vote. 
it really does matter. These low turnout midterms, the people who do vote have a much higher say in what happens. Um, and I would like to give us a shot at um, working with the climate crisis, preserving democracy, um, preserving the rights of women and other groups, um, so many other groups, um, and helping, being of benefit, and actually seeing ourselves as part of a large community, um, which does not happen in autocracy. So for the Road Home Podcast, this is Ethan Nickturn. I'm surrendering my microphone and surrendering control of how you receive this. Have a great day. 